the week of October 1st, 2023, this is Showbiz Sandbox episode 633, the podcast that brings you all the dirt on the news-making headlines around the entertainment world. In Los Angeles, I'm Jay Sperling Reich. And inside a red envelope, it's very tight in here, I'm Charles Portis. Okay, I, Charles, let me guess, is that, what is this, this has, a, this has to be a Netflix thing. That's right. Uh, I'm inside the final red envelope. Netflix announced that the last disc went out and the, the work contained on it is the 2010 remake of True Grit. Uh, directed by the Coen brothers. And uh, True Grit, of course, is a novel by Charles Portis, which is a great oh. novel, far better than either the original John Wayne film or the remake. It's a it's a hell of a book. If you've never read it, it's so much fun. I urge you to go read it and everything by Charles Portis right now. But yes, Netflix has sent out its final disc. It's the end of an era, a neat 25 years after first shipping out a DVD in 1998. The first disc was Beetlejuice, starring Michael Keaton. The last disc was True Grit, the 2010 version. Uh, and not surprisingly, if you're wondering why it's ending, both those films are widely available to rent online, and True Grit is available on Paramount Plus, and they're related platforms to stream for free if you're already a member. So I think we've already answered the question you might ask. Yes. Well, uh, I will say you're not Charles Portis. You're no. Michael Giltz. I'm Michael Giltz. I'm but, in Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, yeah. And uh, I'm, uh, I'm a little under the weather, but I'm, I'm old is what it is. But I'm not as old as Bruce Springsteen or Steven Tyler. Bruce had to cancel the rest of his uh, European leg over illness. And now Aerosmith had to cancel their, their leg of the tour because Steven Tyler is suffering from a fractured larynx. Yikes. So you know, that these does, rockers that does are getting painful. older. Yeah, it does. Well... Bruce, come on. You were born to run. You yeah. got to do it. <laughs> yeah, you got to stay fit. But he has stayed fit. But unfortunately, we're all human. So it's just a one war reminder of that. Though the thing about but, Netflix, I will say, is that they did not want to sell that business or their email list, I guess, or whatever. Um, but there's still a business to be had there. It made about $150 million last year. But I think there's actually a nice little boutique business to be done with all the TV shows and movies that are not easily available for streaming because that's a big number. But they are often available on DVD or Blu-ray or at least have been in the past. So if you had them in your library, people could still rent them pretty easily. And also, you wouldn't necessarily have to subscribe to HBO Max to get access to something or watch a fast channel with commercials. So there's still a business in there. It's just not a big, fat, growing business that would only be something that someone with passion would want to tackle. Hey, Sperling, let's do it. Let's build up that business. You know, uh, I think I, I uh, yeah, sure. Uh, right, I don't even have a DVD player, but here, you know what? I'm actually very excited and more excited than, than the whole Netflix thing. Oh, I had no idea. I mean, Michael, you know, over at Celluloid Junkie, we publish a, a weekly newsletter, right? The, the yeah. marquee. Yeah. Right. I had no idea Beyonce read it. No oh. idea whatsoever. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, back on September 7th, uh, I talked about how Taylor Swift, you know, went direct to movie theaters. She, she bypassed distributors and that she could do that because, of course, one tweet from her can sell, you know, thousands of Travis thousands. Kelsey jerseys. Try millions. Yeah. Try millions. Yes. So, and I said, look, the only other artist that could achieve that is Beyonce. And, uh, boom, I the ended, beehive listened, and, th and now there we are. Yeah. In fact, I ended that newsletter Beyonce, your move. How did you so brilliantly determine that Beyonce is a big international superstar? How, Sterling, I, among all the other people, you figured that out? It's not that I figured it out, it's that she listened to me. 
she ah. said, oh, that's a good idea. We should film one of these things and then put it in movie theaters. That's right. Well, that's what you learn on Sperling's newsletter at Celluloid Junkie. What are we going to learn about this week on Showbiz Sandbox? Well, this week on Showbiz Sandbox, we are watching cute little puppies kick the artificial intelligence out of the creator. That movie, The Creator? Yeah. All about AI. They also kicked the, you know... Patootie. Fill, fill in, yeah, Patootie. Uh, out of the baddies in the Saw franchise. You didn't uh, see that coming, did you? I mean, who had that on their 2023 bingo? Plus, uh, Michael can't stop talking about Stop Making Sense. Taylor Swift is going global, and the Golden Globes just added two new categories. One dumb and one maybe not so dumb. More importantly, SAG-AFTRA, you know, the, the actors guys, uh, they're meeting with the studios and the streamers this week, or the AMPTP, they're going to be talking this week. They haven't met since the actors went on strike in July. Let's hope they don't waste any time making a deal. We're looking at you, studios and streamers. Come on. You could have been on this months ago. On Inside Baseball, we'll dive deep into the deal that the Writers Guild of America is signing off on. There's a lot going on in there, 94 pages of a lot. Of course, during Big Deal or Big Whoop, we'll discuss some of the week's top headlines. But first, as always, we turn it over to entertainment journalist extraordinaire Michael Giltz to fill us in on last week's box office and what Paw Patrol character he is dressing as for Halloween. (laughs) I'm dressing as the Fireman Paw Patrol character, whichever puppy that is. Anyway, we're looking at box office around the world for the entire week. And in October 1st, we're the only ones that do that. And we've got a link to ComScore in our show notes, and we pull information from everywhere. And because we cover the entire world, it's good to keep in mind all the holidays going on right now in China. Uh, October 1st, which was uh, Sunday, that was National Day, the day that Mao Zedong declared the People's Republic of China. And so it's a national holiday. It's also part of the Mid-Autumn Festival taking place in China. So that's exciting. In Korea, it's called Chuseok, also a Mid-Autumn Harvest Festival. Literally, Chuseok means autumn evening. And in India, Monday, October 2nd, the day that we are recording, is a holiday celebrating the birthday of Gandhi. So that will give a box office boost to next week's totals, because we're only going through Sunday. That's the information that we have right now. So you won't be surprised to hear there are a lot of Chinese and Korean films in the top box office market. That's right. Number one around the world is the second <coughs> film of the year by director Yimu Zhang. It's Under the Light, a crime drama, and it opened to $65 million worldwide. At number two is the X-Files 4 Marriage Plan. That's X-E-X. It's about divorced or separated people. It's a romantic comedy, the fourth in the series. It opened up to a very strong $56 million. Then we have Paw Patrol, the mighty movie. $45 million worldwide it made this week. With the little previews it had last week, it's now at $46 million and counting. Then we go to Korea where The Volunteers to the War, a new film and the first in a trilogy by director Cage Chen. Uh, it's a war film set during the Korean War and what was going on there. Oh, ooh. No, I'm sorry. It's a Chinese film, but it's about China's involvement in the Korean War. I apologize about that. My, my notes got a little confused there. So The Volunteers to the War is the first in a trilogy of films about China's involvement and success on their end, as far as they're concerned, in the Korean War. So that opened to 37 million dollars basically in china uh now we have a movie in north america after paul patrol it's the creator a new film by sci-fi director gareth edwards who who did rogue one and godzilla i think right 
His new movie, The Creator, it's an original film, open to $32 million worldwide. Then we have a scary movie, Saw 10 or Saw X, that opened to $29 million. Guess what? The movie only cost $13 million to make. Like all the Saw films, it's made on a dime. The franchise so far has grossed more than $1 billion. And if you add up all the budgets of all the movies in the Saw franchise, they only come to $110 million for the entire series. <laughs> That's well, this, 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 opened to, this had one of the best openings, according to... In a while, in a while. Yes, yeah. it's the best in a while for Saw. They've gotten a little tired, but this one's gotten pretty good reviews by their standards and is doing well, and audiences are happy. And of course, it's Halloween. And you can see how The Nun and The Conjuring Universe saw what the Saw Universe was doing and said, good idea. Their budgets are sometimes a little bigger. For example, The Nun 2 has a $22 million budget, but this week it made $27 million and it's now at $230 million worldwide. So that's a huge, huge success story for the Conjuring franchise, two of the most successful horror franchises of all time. Then back to China for Moscow Mission, an action comedy starring Andy Lau that made $24 million in its opening week. Hercule uh, um, uh, Poirot in A Haunting in Venice, that, that scary Agatha Christie movie, uh, not quite the success story they were hoping for perhaps, but it made another $18 million. It's at $90 million worldwide. If it can triple, it double that, I mean, and get to $180 million, it'll be a success story. It might be hard to pull off. I think it's opened in most of the territories, but it has a scary element, so maybe it'll play through Thanksgiving. I think it's mostly done here in North America. Uh, we also have Equalizer 3. That franchise is at $160 million. Oppenheimer is chugging along. $8 million worldwide. $934 million. Variety, after our last podcast, did a story. Will Oppenheimer hit $1 billion? Excuse me. I think we already answered that question. <laughs> yes. On la I think it was last week's episode. You right. said uh, that it will. It will. Now, it ain't going to do it on this first run. It's going to have to have a reissue come Oscar time, but given the dearth of product coming out, uh, they should hopefully, well, Dune 2 will be there for a while, but hopefully they'll be able to schedule some runs and be able to get a goose once the Oscar nominations come out, maybe in January and February. Uh, that'll happen for them. We'll see if they're able to get more screens, but IMAX loves Oppenheimer and Oppenheimer loves IMAX. So it needs $66 million to go to get to $1 billion for one of the less likely billion dollar movies of all time. Uh, back in Korea, we have Dr. Chio and the Lost Talisman. This horror comedy flick opened to about $8 million. And then in China, this is another interesting movie to look at. It's Lose to Win. It's a Chinese sports comedy, and it opened to about $7 million. And it is a remake of a Spanish film called Champions, which is a, a, based on a true story about a team of people with uh, uh, special needs who are success uh, playing a sport. And it was very popular. Uh, the Spanish film was a hit. That led to a documentary. It was probably already in the works about the team. That came out later the year it came out. And there have been new versions in Arabic, German, India, now Chinese, and of course in English with the Woody Harrelson movie that came out a little bit earlier this year, also called Champions, like the original film. So this is one of those movies that every territory has wanted their own version of. And we'll have to see how well this one ends up doing, but it's off to a pretty good start. $7 million isn't a lot in China. Uh, so it's it was sort of in last place when it comes to all the five big new movies that opened up over the holiday weekend, but it's already been a big hit all over the world in many different versions. And in India, we have a couple movies. Uh, I'm afraid to say this. Fuckery? Fukri? <laughs> 
Fukri 3. This is the latest in the franchise. That's a light Hindi comedy.、Uh, it opened to $6 million, but it only cost $6 million to make. And one of the big hits of the year, Jawan, the action thriller, is now officially the biggest hit of the year in India. It's at $136 million worldwide, a lot of it made in India. Uh, are there any new movies? Oof, we had a limit, a special release movie called The Blind here in North America.、Uh, it was sort of a fathom event type thing, but it's about the backstory of Phil Robertson, who was one of the members of the Duck Dynasty, this reality series that was a big hit in the US. He has a heartwarming story about overcoming his personal demons, and that opened up to $5 million. I guess that was watched by the people who had already seen Sound of Freedom twice and said they needed something new to see.、Um, and the, the Dumb Money, the Paul Dano film, That got some good reviews, but it hasn't widened very well. It made $5 million. It's at $8 million and counting, but I don't think it's going to catch fire. And、uh, scrolling down, the one other thing I'd like to talk about I mean, Barbie. Stop making sense. I see. Well, I'm getting have... there. Barbie's、okay. chugging along, and Stevie Nicks announced there will be a new Barbie. In the visage of Stevie Nicks. So there'll be a Stevie Nicks Barbie. I guess she'll have a shawl draped over her shoulders and maybe scarves draped on the lamps in her、uh, Malibu dream house. And finally, which, which will, of course, collapse in a landslide. Oh, that's up. But Barbie the firefighter will come rescue you. Exactly.、Uh, anyway, Stop Making Sense went wide on regular screens. I think it's mostly left IMAX here in North America.、Uh, this week it made $1.4 million. That's a lot of money for a concert film. I know, Taylor. I know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyway, it's so far in this round, it's made about $3 million, which means it's made $8 million total since its original release.、Uh, that's, that's just terrific. It was number 12 for the week. It broke the $1 million mark over the weekend. Just awesome to see. If you look at this movie,、um, it's now at number 23 all time of the top grossing concert films. If it can get to 9 million, which it most certainly will, I think, it will be in the top 20 grossing concert films of all time. That's how ridiculous the money that like, Justin Bieber and Michael Jackson and Beyonce and Taylor Swift are making or are going to make.、Um, But when you think about all those movies that disappear, my goodness, Rolling Stone has a story about the restoration of Stop Making Sense. No one had the original negative. They'd already announced a release date. And they're like, yes, we're going to release it. <laughs> A24 was going to do it, but they couldn't find any. They were using whatever third rate material that they had, but they made a random call to MGM. Could you check, please? Even though it's not your movie and you have no reason to have it, but maybe you have it? Turns out they did. They had a pristine negative no one had touched for 30 years. Never an MGM film. Now, with the audio, that audio originally had been done at Todd AO. Everybody in the industry knows Todd AO, but they went bankrupt. And there was a huge、yeah. pile of material at Tadeo that was unclaimed or held back because of unpaid bills. And they were, whoever was there was tearing down the building and said, Hey, look, anybody wants their stuff, come grab it because we're just throwing it out. And Sony stepped up to the plate. Sony Pictures sent a semi, a semi and hauled away all the stuff that they could and took it to a warehouse in Kansas. Yeah,、oh. the, the salt mines. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, is that the salt mine thing? Oh, okay.、Yeah. And that's where they found the original audio tracks, pristine audio tracks for Stop Making Sense. Crazy. This is a film from 1984, one of the top grossing concert films of all time, a valuable thing in your library. And that stuff just goes astray. My goodness. Well, were you excited about that? You know, Beyonce, you already mentioned her concert film will arrive December 1st.、Uh, so that's exciting news. They filmed it in her hometown and、uh, wherever she was at、uh, before、um, a, a few months ago or weeks ago. And the Renaissance Tour just recently grossed almost $200 million in one month 
So that yeah. tour is a red hot ticket. December 1st is Black Friday weekend. So it'll be an interesting weekend for that film to come out. Um, there was also more news about Taylor Swift's film, wasn't there? Yes, it's going global. Um, so, you know, AMC Theaters is distributing this directly. Uh, they're going to be doing it through Trafalgar Releasing. Both, uh, they're actually doing the same thing for Beyonce. She doesn't have a distributor either. It's going direct to to theaters, uh, and AMC is helping. Uh, and, 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 you know, they re- announced this at 10.30 p.m. on a Sunday night. I was like, huh. really, guys? Mm-hmm. Really? You couldn't wait until Monday morning. But, uh, <laughs> you know, anyway. Well, if, somebody, uh, if the Golden Globe... Oh, I'm sorry, you had more to say? No, I just think I... I, I question the timing i guess that beyonce wanted this all done in 2023 because i would say you know there's a lot of films coming out between thanksgiving and new year's well they said Uh, this year there isn't they said there's a bit of a dead space there well maybe maybe in that one two week period i think december 13th unless the marvels tanks uh, well that won't tank i don't think you know and so who knows i mean maybe it's a maybe it is a good time i it's just it's inevitably going to be compared to what Taylor Swift did just a month earlier. So mm. uh, I, I don't know. I saw a, a documentary, a, a music documentary about Joan Baez. Oh, did you see that movie? What's it called? I Am Sound or? I Am A Noise. Uh, I Am A Noise. I mean, she's led, definitely led a confusing life. Uh, confusing? And an interesting. Interesting, it, fascinating life. How is it confusing? Well, just because was she, uh, you know, molested? Was she not molested? What her family life was? Like, even she doesn't know. Uh, But, you know, all of her drawings, and it relies heavily on her recordings that she sent to her family while on the road, and uh, all of her diaries. I mean, she saves everything. Speaking of storage facilities, she goes into her storage facility, and there's just like, you know, it's a storage lock with all of her stuff in it. It's remarkable. The, um... I, uh, you know, I've interviewed her. She's a fascinating talent and interesting. She's been all over the place in terms of, uh, of uh, her career. She's been, you know, doing great music for decades. So she's a fascinating person. When I look at the release schedule, I do see Hunger Games, November 17th. I see Trolls Band Together. I see uh, Napoleon, which I've heard mixed things about, by the way. Um, and then you get to December. But that's, you know, Peter 5-8 with Rebecca De Mornay. I mean, uh, you know. Then you get, that's, that's sort of it. So you get to December 1st, you've got Bike Riders. That's been getting good buzz. Godzilla Minus One, that's a Japanese film. Um, and then you've got Beyonce, right? Yeah, so you, so you get to The Boy and the Heron, but that's not a huge play. You got Poor Things, but that's a, more of a platform thing, I imagine, with, with Emma Stone. Yes. You know, you don't have a big, big player until you get to Wonka December th- on December yeah. 15th. Yeah. So... I don't see a huge ton of stuff beforehand. Napoleon hopefully will be a success, but that's not really competing with, with this movie. Wish, an animated film, you know, uh, a kitty film. So there's not, a lot, there's not a lot of stuff there. November 17th, you got two weeks, and then you've got, you know, a, a platform to hope for big film with Napoleon. I mean, that will appeal to adults. Beyonce should appeal to everyone. You know, I, I, don't, I don't think it's really a, a, a top-heavy schedule where she doesn't fit in there. Well, let's face it, uh, you know, her fans will come out and see it. Oh, no, no doubt about it. But you're thinking they could have gotten more money or more attention if they'd waited, or you're just worried about the comparison to Taylor. 
Well, that definitely. Well, I that's am going to happen no matter if you open it a year from now. They'll say, well, yeah, Taylor true. grows this. So, you know, but there you go. I wouldn't, I wouldn't down. I mean, I we're wouldn't. comparing it to Justin Bieber from 2011. So there you right, go. Right, exactly. Yeah. But, you know, <laughs> if they're smart, the Golden Globes would add a category for best concert film so they could give Taylor Swift an award and get her on their show. So because the Golden Globes trying to burnish their tarnished reputation, they have added two new categories. Tell me what you think about them, Sperling. The first new category is cinematic and box office achievement. I think the box office achievement one is ridiculous. You have to gross at least $150 million in North America or however they determine it, an equivalent in streaming numbers. So you think it's ridiculous. I would call it the Avatar Awards, and I agree with you. Why don't you just say, and the biggest hit of the year was? You know, like it's not an award. I think Dick Clark had a show like that where they just gave an award to the best-selling album of the year, the best-selling song. They're like, can, you win. Can you t- by the way, can you tell that this awards show is now owned by a media company that publishes trade magazines? <laughs> and then the other award that they've added, because remember, they cover television as well as film, is Best Performance in Stand-Up Comedy on TV. Now, that's worth something. That's actually pretty good. I mean, there's tons of comics out there, especially now that they can take their specials and chop them up and kind of release them on on Instagram and on TikTok over, you know, take a little two-minute clip here, a little two-minute clip there. They've got like, you know, months worth of material. this will be for like a film. This will be for like an hour-long special. Oh, I know. I'm sure, yeah, yeah. They're cut from those specials. Right, right. So definitely, I, I agree. I'm not sure in 10 or 20 years from now, there'll be the same supply. It might be one of those awards you have for a while. And then you find out mm, there's only three things, you know, to nominate that are actually seem worthwhile. But for right now, uh, it's a fairly bit of a golden age for lots of stand-up comedy specials. And you could have awarded the Jared Carmichael or Hannah Gadsby, or probably they'll give it to Louis CK or something, but, um, or, or, you know, Chappelle, but, uh, you know, it's. Uh, you I know, think that is pretty the legitimate. Academy, Be- mm-hmm. The Academy Awards doesn't have best inner titles anymore. No, no, they don't. Yeah, the, the, the awards come and go. Uh, there was best female jazz performance vocals, then it was just best jazz vocal performance. Yeah. So that makes sense. And in this case, when you're shoving together like late night variety shows and late night talk shows and comedy specials and Saturday Night Live, you know, it gets a little confusing and crowded and saying something like, hey, Let's just award those people who said, here's an hour-long special or longer. It's my thing. Here it is. So I think it's cool. I think it's reasonable, too. Yeah, I agree. Um, now, we're moving on to uh, streaming. We've been talking about streaming already. And, of course, Suits is still the big story in streaming on Netflix and Peacock right now. 2.4 billion minutes viewed. And a show I just finished watching, which I have to admit, got a little better. It's not really good, but One Piece, the Netflix uh, series based on the anime, based on the manga or the comic. I forget what it is. Maybe it's a comic book or a manga. But uh, that's at 1.3 billion minutes for its first week of availability. This was back at the end of August, the beginning of September. One Piece, the lead kid is very charming. The show has a nice optimistic air, and that's why I sort of stuck with it. Didn't quite work, but it was it was all right. It wasn't the train wreck that some other adaptations of anime have been. But I was very excited by the news that one show is coming to Hulu. We talk all the time about how shows disappear through the cracks. You can't see them. I've got a list as long as my arm. Well, one of them is coming back again, and that's Moonlighting. With Sybil Shepard and Bruce Willis, it's coming to Hulu October 10th. Are you excited? Do you care? Some fly-by-night. 
<laughs> Some fly by day, you know. <laughs> uh, but Moonlighting Strangers, yeah, I mean, the funny thing is, it's been remastered, but they have not made clear. They've like, the, the theme music will be included by Al Jarreau, that song Sperling was just referencing. I'm like, well, of course that would be there for God's sake. Like, that's never something that you lose the rights to usually. So like, duh, but we, people want to know if all the other music cues are going to be in the show. And they haven't said a word, which makes me think they will not be. And again, with all these people, without somebody strike and clear up and get the musicians union to say, look, all you're doing is blocking stuff from being seen. That's not making you any money. Come to a compromise so that we can get all variety shows and musical cues available again when they've been licensed properly. Should be able to get them out there again and have a reasonable fee. That doesn't mean shows like Moonlighting just can't be seen with their original cues. It has to be something that can be fixed. And I think that they've messed up again. But to me, if they could clear that up that would be worth a strike i mean that would really be a big deal oh i see what you're doing i see what you're doing you're, so did you wanted else. to talk about you wanted to talk about moonlighting so you could talk about bruce willis and how he's doing oh wait no wait you said big and deal so it I must did, be time for I big did. deal or big whoop our weekly segment where we discuss the top headlines in entertainment and tell you whether they're really important or just overhyped nonsense our first story i'm going back to school michael to be or not to be what do you think Oh, uh, that's terrific. Okay, what do you think? Juilliard would take me? Absolutely. Well, it just got a lot cheaper. Oh. The ma- yeah, the Master of Fine Arts four-year program at Juilliard in New York City is now tuition-free. It joins Yale, which got rid of its tuition two years ago. After a $150 million donation from David Geffen, I have a couple of colleges my kids are going to that I'd like to talk to. Is this a big <laughs> deal or a big whoop? Well, all public universities and community colleges should be free, Sperling. That's what I say. And it should also have technical school be available for free as well. The big question here, though, when you're going to Juilliard, is it going to be in New York City? Uh, room and board. That's, yeah. not inclu- that's not included in this, and that's still a huge chunk of money. But it's certainly better to have uh, no tuition, for sure, no doubt about it. But that's also a big expense in college, and that's something that you really have to work on and keep an eye on, because it doesn't do you much good if you don't have to pay tuition, but your room and board is $6,000 a month. Right. <laughs> yeah, look, it only costs you $90,000 a year to go to the school for free. Yeah, so I hope they can raise more money and subsidize the board as well. Maybe it's included, but from all the stories I saw, I couldn't I didn't ever see that mentioned. So as far as I know, it's not, "Hey, if you know how Juilliard is working or Yale works and the food and board is included, tell us." Yes, you can write to us, dirt at showbizsandbox.com. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. You can call and leave us a voicemail. The number to call is 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. We're on X. Yes, I'm finally calling it X rather than Twitter, which is what it should still be called. At Showbiz Sandbox is our handle. And we're on Facebook, facebook.com slash Showbiz Sandbox is where you can like our page and people do reach out to us there as they did over the past week. Now, our next story is about streaming once again. Major video streaming companies have formed a trade group to advocate for their industry at the state and federal level. Yeah, that's what they really need. That's, that's what they're missing. Uh, Disney, Netflix, and Warner Brothers Discovery, I guess Max would be what they're... What they're uh, cave, would be, cave, call it what they want. <laughs> yeah, all right. Uh, they are the lead companies in this new organization, but it also includes Paramount, Peacock, Telemundo, Televisa, Univision, Pluto, and the MPA, the Motion Picture Association, among others. So it's an association that belongs to an association? That's weird. Uh, Its first step was to release a poll saying consumers love streaming. 
and are wary of any regulations that might be imposed on it. (laughs) Go figure. Don't regulate us. Its second poll shows consumers love the idea of paying more for their streaming services. Yeah, that's, I don't know who who answered that poll. And and they hope prices will keep rising. Yeah, this is a pipe dream. Okay, we're kidding about the second poll, but big deal or big whoop. I mean, yeah, we did a poll and found out people hate the idea of you regulating us. I mean, give me a break. They uh, hate, by the way, they also hate the idea that when you tax us, they hate that. They hate that, yeah. Um, this is sort of in response to the Coalition for Local News. That was formed in February. Not sure if we covered this. Repping no. more than 600 local TV stations in the United States. A loophole in rules from the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, allows streamers to negotiate with networks like ABC rather than every individual ABC station when it comes to covering local covering local stations on their platform. So like if Hulu wants to put, well, they own some ABC, but say they put NBC, they want a local NBC channel. They just talk to NBC and negotiate a rate and NBC isn't really there to fight for the local stations they don't own. So they get a better deal and the local stations aren't happy about that. And so they're either getting too low a rate or disappearing entirely from services like Fubo and Hulu that offer TV bundles. So they banded together to fight back and say, this has got to change. And the streamers are like, huh, we need a streaming service because Disney and Netflix and Warner Brothers really don't have a strong voice on, 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 on in Washington right now. So we really need to band together to get our voices heard. So, you know, good for them. They're, they're doing their best, but we're rooting for the little guy. AI. Artificial intelligence, big deal, or but no, I'm kidding. Uh, it's like all I'm the sorry, Sperling. You have to stop doing this piece, Sperling. I'm sorry, Sperling. You cannot continue doing this piece. I'll continue the show for you. Hey, Michael, can you do me a favor though while I re- read this out? Could you open the pod bay doors for me? Because uh... it's okay, <laughs> Sperling. You don't need to do that. I'm going to turn the oxygen down until you decide not to do that. <laughs> C2001 is Space Odyssey. Uh, As everybody knows, AI is taking over the world. Seriously, if you're sick of hearing about the potential of AI, the next few years are going to be very, very rough for you. (laughs) ChatGPT and the like will have a big impact on all areas of the economy, just like the internet did. And, you know, before that, uh, electricity, for instance. We're just getting started. First, a film festival in Sweden is screening it. Yeah, it's it's screening an AI-assisted twist on the Ingmar Bergman classic Persona. That's the name of the film. In that film, the identities of a woman and her young nurse merge in many ways, with one famous shot combining their two faces into one. For this version of the film, dubbed Another Persona, get it? Because Persona, I think, isn't it? Or Persona, you're right. Well, Persona, you say Persona, I say Persona, I say persona. tomato, tomato. Yeah. Uh, anyway, the face of the lead actor, Liv Ullman, is being replaced by actor Alma Poisty for the... For the entire film, by the way, not just one shot. Both women will be in attendance to discuss the film, acting, and artificial intelligence. And this particular version, by the way, will never be seen again. Yeah, right. <laughs> if it exists, totally, we'll see it again someday. Yeah, it's going to be seen, yeah. Amazon's publishing side, by the way, is seeing the same flood of AI-generated content swamping many music streaming services. So they've laid down the law. Self-published authors can only add three new eBooks a day for sale on Amazon's website. 
Presumably, there's an exception for Stephen King, who has probably written three new books by the time I finish this sentence. <laughs> Finally, Amazon is investing $4 billion in the AI startup Anthropic, a competitor to OpenAI and other systems known as Generative AI, which suck up data and can then generate new images and text via its service. And they've dubbed their service Claude. Everybody names their service now, like they give them first names. They're not Billy like, Bob. Yeah. Uh, Google has also invested in Anthropic, by the way. Finally, a fake AI, I guess, or an AI fake of Tom Hanks was promoting a dental plan he had nothing to do with and did not endorse. So big deal or big whoop. It's all a big deal, I'm afraid. The movie is an interesting experiment. I'm not quite sure what they're trying to prove with that. I guess maybe the 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 improvement in AI and what they can do and what's possible and what does this mean. So that's sort of interesting, and I'm glad it's a one-off shot rather than something that they're you know making available forever. At least that's their intent. Um, secondly, Amazon's publishing side. You can only publish three books a day. Why would they ever let anyone upload three books to Amazon Publishing? Clearly, some something crappy is going on. How about three books oh, a month, a year? Like, like, why would you let someone? You're just going to get swamped by crap. Even if it's not AI generated, nobody needs to post three new books a day. That's ridiculous. Maybe three new short stories a month or something. But, you know, they should have much stricter limits on that. Uh, the thing that annoyed me about Anthropic and the stories about it was it said Amazon was investing $4 billion in the startup and thro I'm like, no, if you've got $4 billion, you're no longer a startup. <laughs> like Google's already invested in you. Amazon's investing in you billions of dollars. It's not a startup anymore. It's just the AI company. And finally, yeah, this Tom Hanks thing, he posted a thing saying, look, I, I, I don't know where this came from. It's got nothing to do with me. And now the image has disappeared or whatever was trying to promote this dental service. And Robin Williams's estate came out and talked about all the deep fakes that are out there of him saying all sorts of stuff in his voice or video of him and how upsetting it is and how that issue for sag after on the writers is a really serious and personal one for her. So this stuff's only going to get worse. And ignore all your political ads on Facebook, by the way. <laughs> whatever video you see, if it's not from ABC News directly, ignore it. <laughs> By the way, speaking of Facebook, their mm -hmm. AI is one that went without a, a first name. They just named it after an animal, Llama. They just were like, nope, just, it's going to be called Llama. Llama. All right. Well, there you yeah. go. That's a little inside baseball for me. Okay. It's well, not that really, case. of course, but I just thought I'd say that just to help you along. Okay. Wow. <laughs> it's time for Inside Baseball, actually, where we analyze some of the headlines that have the entertainment industry buzzing. We'll explain what they mean for the business and more importantly, how they affect you. And I wish I had a sound effect now of me like slicing into a cardboard box and ripping the tape off and unpacking stuff, because that's what we're about to do with the Writers Guild tentative contract, which looks like it's probably going to be ratified. Oh, absolutely. No question. Even the last week one was ratified by like 93%. So yeah. there's no question this will happen. Yeah. So, I mean, look, there was a big, you know, over at the Hollywood Palladium, uh, there was a big rally of writers and they were all like, cheering for it. Yeah, they're all cheering and oh, yeah. It was, uh, so this, I think, is it's pretty much done. They, and they believe that they got a, a, you know, it's not everything they wanted. It's not historic as uh, well. No, it is historic. I believe they do know. They do believe. You know, it's Jonathan historic. did use the word historic in 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 some of his writings. So uh, it's historic, according to Jonathan Handel, uh, who was on our show last week, kind of explaining what what went on. Uh, but we have some details now. Now we have read the ninety four page contract. No, 
Okay, no. Jonathan Handel has read the 94-page contract. <laughs> and others have looked at parts or all of it, absolutely. And uh, so, yeah, we're looking at the analysis of what's been going on there. Let's dive deep. First of all, um, this was interesting. When all the post-game analysis and people trying to spin it their way, we clearly see the studios trying to say, it's not that good a deal. Bad deal. Um, but the one thing that WGA kept emphasizing, that the only stumbling block, the real stumbling block, was not between them and the AMPTP, them and the Association of Movie and Producers and Television Producers. It was, I'm sorry, the Association of Motion Picture and Television Producers, all the studios and streamers. It was the internal disagreement between the studios and the streamers themselves because they all have different business plans and what their needs, and they couldn't agree on what to fight for. Well, that's true, number one. Number two, it's the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television. Oh, thank you, Alliance. Not the, it's yeah. not an association. It's not a gang. It's a club. It's not right. an association. And, it's Alliance. And the reason I, I point that out is because Cause I was used wrong. to be, well, it used to be called the association, but then there was another strike and everybody started fighting internally in the association of motion. And so <laughs> somebody broke off and created the Alliance. So I, I, people thought, hey, this is going to happen again. This is exactly what created the AMPTP in the first place. But they're all part of it who were a part of the older one, aren't they? I know. That's that's the funny thing. Yeah, yes. Mm. Plus, now they have all these streamers. So right. go figure. So that's true. We don't think there's any disagreement with that. What about wages? They got a 5% increase in their first year, basically the same deal as the DGA got. According to Jonathan Handel, that's about 85% of the total cost of everything that we're fighting over in terms of just pure dollar terms right now. Because obviously, once you get some new agreement or understanding, you can build on it in years to come. Is that a big fail for them that they only got 5%? Uh, I mean, is it 5% every year? No, it's it goes the, five, four, three, or whatever. It's just right. they got the, basically the same deal the DGA got. Yeah, I so, apologize if I got the details wrong, but it's not five every year now. Yeah, and of course, I, there was tons of inflation in the last few years, so they're losing ground. Right, and that's my problem with that particular... Um, I know that they, they gave in on that one to get some movement in other areas, but I think... And maybe what they're doing is they're going to say, yes, we got movement in, in... And we'll talk about some of these things, minimum, staffing minimums, and uh, AI, and... Three years from now, when we renegotiate this contract, we're going to push for a seven, eight percent increase uh, because that that will be one of the few things we have to fight about then. But it seems like that should have been one of the things you didn't cave in on. Uh, I don't know. I disagree. I've, uh, as Jonathan Handel says, he says, look, this is the one area they gave in on and they got tons of, you know, they got significant changes, things right. they've been fighting for decades in a lot of different areas that help every area of the business. And all those areas were really crucial for the future. So I think, of course, you want more. And we know the actors want much more. And they're not about to budge because their other issues are not money related. This is like their big money thing is the residuals. So uh, or whatever you call that. So we'll have to see what's going on there. Um, total gains. Um, now, everybody, of course, can argue over how to value what they're arguing for. The writers say their initial ask was probably worth about $430 million over three years. Some say the studios counted with offer of about $86 million. And so their final deal is pretty much right in the middle of $233 million. And I think that that's a per year number, not, not a three-year number. Oh, I beg your pardon. Really? Yeah. Yes, which is are why you, everybody was like, why are you arguing over this? It's like, there's like 10 of you there. It's $30 million each per year. Give me a break. Move on. When, and that was the, the, when it was at $430 million. So, but I, I'll double check that while you tell yeah, us about that. I'm, uh, I'm not sure that's right. But, but um, 
But how do you how do you measure like the AI aspect of this? Well, I don't think I, mean, I don't think they did. I doubt they said AI their gains in AI are worth five hundred million dollars. I'm sure they said AI. You can't really estimate that. Maybe they gave it a couple million and said, "Well, that'll be worth something down the road." But that's not an area where you have a hard metric, and I doubt they valued that a great deal. But I don't know. But I'm just assuming. How could they argue it was worth fifty million? You know, it's like you know pulling a number out of their hat. Nonetheless. Um, just looking at all the different areas where they made gains, um, it looks like they made some significant gains. And you look at like the studio Warner Brothers, uh, whatever Discovery is called right now, they said themselves they lost about half a billion dollars on the strike alone. At some point, at one point, they'd already lost, were losing about five hundred million dollars. That's what they estimated would be the final cost. So <laughs> that's one studio, and if you add them all up. You know, and you turn with the gains, I think the studios are the big losers. And the writers would say they have established guidelines on a lot of areas, like staffing minimums. Staffing minimums are based on episode totals. If you've got at least six episodes in a series, you must hire three writer-producer minimum. This includes the showrunner. Plus, there should be a sliding scale of junior or staff writers. If you've got six episodes, you need three more writers, junior or staff. Uh, seven to 12 episodes, you got to hire five people. 13 episodes, you got to hire six. So you're going to always have three writer-producer minimum, and then you're going to have more writers based on how many episodes you have. Now, there is an exception for a show where there's one big kahuna who's going to literally write every episode, and they announce in advance in the deal, Mike White will write every episode of The White Lotus Season 3. Then there's an exception for that, which is fair and appropriate, but those are pretty rare. Yeah, and, and but they also got to define what was uh, a showrunner like you know who's what what does a showrunner like what it when had never it, been defined before and they could have said right. i'm the showrunner michael's the showrunner or the director's the showrunner, or the producer from the studio is the showrunner so now the writers got to say it must be a writer that's huge isn't it yes and by the way i, I just in, uh, some quick research here uh the hollywood reporter says it's 233 million dollars annually so, Annually, okay. All and right. Variety I'm does wrong. too. Others say the deal is worth $233 million. So I think it's an annu- that's an annual number though. Okay, thank you for clarifying that. Um, also another big deal is that they've sort of reestablished the idea that there's a career ladder for people. There's a path to learning how the business works for young writers because they're now guaranteeing on-set experience. Two writer-producers must be hired for at least 20 weeks of the production, or if the production is less than 20 weeks, for the entire run of the production. That means they're more likely to have a chance to be on set and see what's going on because you can't learn the ropes if you're not there when they're actually making the show. So those little mini writer rooms that would disappear before the show even began shooting, no more. Now you're going to have to have people on set and around so they can actually get experience. And that seems like a really big deal. Yes, it is. And uh, the one thing they didn't get was keeping the writer on through post, uh, which I would Mm -hmm. say eventually they're going to have to figure something out there because when an editor goes, you know what, we don't have a good shot of that. Let's just like cut that line out. It's like, um, you mean the part where he asks who shot JR? Like, no, we need need that line. You know, know, it plays out in episode 14 at the end of the season. So you need it now in episode three. 
And we were getting a lot of people being hired and dropped and hired and dropped for these little short spans. They weren't able to string together any work. And then they weren't getting to be part of the show when it happened. And so they have established, you know, writer's rooms aren't disappearing forever. I didn't mean to imply that. But when there is a writer's room, if you've hired at least uh, three writers, well, then at least three writer producers must have at least 10 consecutive weeks of employment. So you can't say, give us three weeks, give us five weeks, give us two weeks, give us six weeks. It's like, no, no, no. We need two and a half months of employment. You want us to work on creating a series and you want us to try and establish uh, whether there's an idea here, we want two and a half months of work. And if you green light the series, at least two of the three people you've just hired must be included in the writer's room. So like you can't just use us for three weeks, dump us and then make the show with somebody else. Yeah, I wonder how that's going to play out in, well, that's what unions do, I guess. You know, like, let's say one of those two writers, let's say you ha- hired two writers, one of well, them is if you're is not available, not- if you moved on, that's a different issue, yeah. but you know, yeah. Uh, and yeah, I mean, look, the whole, you know, minimum staffing thing, I thought they were going to have real trouble with that, but they did have this sliding scale where it's like, well, it's only eight episodes, so you only a minimum of three. Right. Oh, it's, it's 24 it episodes. So, yeah, it makes par- perfect sense. Uh, and to be honest with you, there, as you mentioned, very few showrunners. You could start naming them: Mike White, uh, who? the uh, you know what the the uh, the guy who did uh, Yellow, what Taylor Sheridan? Taylor, thank you, Taylor Sheridan. Uh, you know, the, you can count them on one hand. So most showrunners want a a staff because there's just no way to do a whole season and keep the production flowing with just one guy going, wait, I've got to go back to my trailer and rewrite this dial. It's like, no, we, we need to keep moving. I'm sorry, Sperling. I would prefer you not discuss the next issue. Oh, well, then that must be very intelligent of you. I mean, artificially intelligent, but still very intelligent of you to skip this next thing. It will make our show much shorter. Anyway, let's go on to free rewrites then. I'm kidding. Uh, By the way, Yellowstone is not, I apologize for talking over, Yellowstone is not written by Taylor Sheridan alone. There are co-writing credits on a number of the episodes. Okay. Um, the So artificial intelligence was in the end, one of the big sticking points and what kept it from, you know, this the tentative deal from being announced earlier, they were still working out what that means. And essentially, they are saying that, it depends on who you ask, who won on this one, actually, uh, they that a writer cannot be asked to rewrite a generative AI script or material, that it would not, the AI would not be given credit, it would not be an adaptation, it would be an original work. And the that means that, they get. That means they get paid more. Right? Correct. So yeah, there's there's right. lots of things here. Like uh, if you're asked if they generate some some pitch a script with AI and they say here take this see what you can do with it that's not considered a rewrite because it hasn't generated anything copyrightable and thus it doesn't really exist commercially because you can't use it and so the writer said guess what that's an original script what we're doing because the stuff the AI did is no good to you until we touch it. So that's not a rewrite. That's an original script. And that means a higher rate. So that's, that's important, though the details are confusing. There's also terms like generative AI versus AI in general that they haven't really been able to clarify or nail down. There have been areas where they said, look, we're going to agree to disagree on this little area here. Do we figure this out? But a big thing to keep in mind is that the courts are going to have the final say in terms of what's usable, what's copyrightable, what you can take to the bank. So, you know, this isn't even cleared up in the courts yet. So it's no surprise they would have trouble clarifying it when it comes to this contract agreement. You know, it'll be a lot clearer probably three years from now. 
Right. And that was one of the things that the negotiating committee for the WGA said is like, we didn't want to be too locked in to certain things because we have no idea where this is going. And they also pointed out that in the last strike in 0708, that one of the big sticking points was about webisodes and how to get paid mm-hmm. for webisodes. Remember those things? And they were like, like what's now, a webisode? Right. Now it's they not don't the even business. exist. <laughs> yeah. It's not even a, th- so it's like, why, why die on that mountain when that mountain may not actually be, be there in five years. So, and then here's one thing they've been fighting for, for decades, they say for 20 years, what did the writers get? They got uh, no more free re- rewrites, a reinforced second step. So what does that mean exactly? That every writer who hands in a draft, and this is mostly, by the way, for films, mm-hmm. you hand in the draft and then there's notes. And then you have to go back and rewrite that. Well, you're and doing you that do for it free. Again, and then you do it again, and then you do right. it again. Because the fear is that they'll go, well, okay, well, since you're not available and you're, you, you don't want to do it for free, we're just going to give it to this other guy. Oh, and now guess what? You have to share screenwriting credit. So <laughs> when we give those bonuses out for performance, yeah, um, we're going to have to cut those in half because the other person gets some. Well, I don't know about that. Is that something you know? That's not to do yes, with the benefits yeah. thing. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's, that's no, not that's benefits, something- but like, that's a bonus. So like- oh, wow. I don't know anything about that. I haven't heard that. You've heard that? In 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 certain times if they split the, you know, this they split the writing credit, then uh-huh. other things get split as well. Other payments get split as well, and okay. that's part of the issue. And there's some other key things in 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 this sort of area, similar area. One TV staff writers in a room, you also will get paid when you generate a script and get credit for it. Uh, that's a big change. Accelerated pay. There's, this is more about studios when you're turning in a script and then they want rewrites and they want this and they want that. There's times where they string you out and you've written something and you're waiting months and months and months and months before you get uh, the next un- chunk of money that you're owed. And they've tidied that up and said, no, 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 you're going to get accelerated pay now. So you're not left stringing along and hanging out and going, well, you know, <laughs> where's my $30,000, the other chunk of my, my payment that I'm supposed to get. They've really tightened that up, which has been a big, big practical problem. So it's something that, you know, it's a little hard to describe or it's not, doesn't strike you as a big deal. But when you're a writer sitting at home waiting to pay the rent and going, where the hell's my, you know, 30,000 the studio can string you along, that sort of change really matters to you. And another thing that they got was uh, streaming movie minimums. This is the amount of minimums that you're going to get paid, which means everyone gets a raise because maybe you get the minimum plus 10% or 15% or you're a bigger deal. But when someone, the bottom is leveled, that means everybody above them is going to get more money too, basically, unless you're one of the big kahunas and making a ton of money. They basically got what the DGA got was a big increase in international fees and the minimum. So there's a big increase. The numbers are confusing. But in general, it's a 50% increase when you combine everything, domestic and international, in terms of what writers will get paid when they write a big budget movie for a streamer. It's a big, big change. There's also increases for hour-long episodes and other stuff. So that also will have a really big impact. Um the fees for per episodes don't apply to acquired shows like, say, Suits on Netflix and Peacock. It only applies to streaming originals, but there is a lot of streaming originals. And you might say, well, they didn't get more than the DGA, but the DGA really made big strides in this area. This was one of their big wins. So the Writer Guild building on that and getting that as well is really important. Well, and there's also the the issue around writing teams uh, and how like Sperling is- and Michael we're a big writing team right yeah yeah like Abbott we're known and for our, yeah. our movie comedies yes 
but here, to me, one of the biggest issues was transparency. Oh, but to complain, explain the writing teams, their oh. benefits have been cleared up. Writing teams traditionally, if Sperling and I wrote a script, we got paid $100,000. Uh, we would each only get credited $50,000 in terms of income uh, when it comes to achieving the goals we need to start getting benefits or to qualify for whatever levels retirement of Retirement plans, and, health and medical benefits. insurance and retirement yeah. plan has a huge impact on your career when you're a writing team. And now they said, no, 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 no. When they get paid X amount of dollars, they're both going to get credit for that amount when it comes to qualifying for employment and benefits and retirement and all that stuff. That's a huge change in win. And everybody who's a writing team is probably wiping their forehead and going, thank God. But yeah, yeah tell us exactly. about transparency. This is another big win. They said absolutely would not happen. No way right. are you getting transparency. No way are we going to reward a hit show on Netflix. Can't happen. You can't compare different streamers. They all have different goals. How do you define a hit show? How do you define how much of a success it is? And we're not going to give you any numbers ever. So don't even ask. Right. Well, and that's been, I mean, look, this argument has been going on since before these strikes, right? Uh, and essentially, the writers wanted a success-based residual. You know, if you're successful, you get paid more. If you're not successful and nobody watches your show, well, guess what? You shouldn't be paid more. So to figure out, well, is the show successful or not, you need to have some transparency or a way to figure out whether that show is successful or not. And all we've had until now is like Netflix going, yeah, yeah, trust us. It didn't do well. Or trust us. <laughs> but we'd like uh, four more seasons. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so they didn't necessarily get transparency. So, a six people, basically, or, you know, a very they got small. Some. Yes, a very small group will be given aggregated numbers. They can only report on them in an aggregated fashion. So they can never say, Stranger Things had 400,000 people watch it on day one. They can't do that. They have to say, you know, well, I don't know what they have to say. This is the one thing, the one area where a lot of the people who have read this contract said, I, I get it, but let's see how this works in practice because it's, it's very, there's a lot of room around the edges where it, it, it could, you know, basically not work. Uh, right. Well, and, here's what's going on. Every, every streamer has different goals. Amazon wants you to ship products to your home and pay for Amazon Prime. Apple wants you to buy an Apple Watch and an Apple phone and an Apple computer. Uh, Netflix wants you to, just to subscribe to Netflix. And if you want a cheaper version, preferably the ad platform so they can make more money off you that way. So how do you compare all these different companies with their different goals? Warner Brothers, you know, Max, they have a different goal. So what they said was the studios and streamers came back and said, all right, here's what we'll do. If we've determined a show is a hit within the first 90 days, you're going to get a bump. What's a hit? That means at least 20% of the people in the U.S. who subscribe to our platform watch that show, however they define that, then that means it's a hit and you get more money. Now, they, what they do is they take the total hours watched, they divide it by the total running time, and then they, that's how they determine the number of views. Then they say how many people subscribe to us in North America. And so that means Apple, which has very few subscribers, isn't compared in the same way as Netflix, which has a ton of subscribers. And so if you meet that, if they got a million people and 200,000 of them watch that show, you get a bonus. And you get a 50% bonus of the fixed residual for domestic and international, even though you only have to hit the target in the US. So if you hit that target in the US, that applies to your show all over the world. So that's just a new metric. That's what they were willing to share. And it's an interesting start. 
And you know what? Now that they got a, a metric, they can demand more info. They can demand a bigger hit once it's a hit, you know, bigger residual and all sorts of stuff. But it does open the door and lets them start looking at the, you know, what's going on inside. Now, SAG-AFTRA, they want a cut of the platform revenue. They don't, they don't want to have to worry about, they just want to know how much money are you pulling in every month? And we want a cut of that based on how big of a hit our show is. So well, we'll because, see if they're and, successful. And, and that's actually understandable because they're like, hey, you know what? You can like juice the numbers any way you want when you're reporting on, on viewership, okay? So what we want is, we know you have to go to Wall Street, Netflix, and tell them how much money you made, how much revenue you earned, how much mm-hmm. net income you earned. So you ain't gonna be lying there, okay? So that's what we wanna tap into. However, I think that because of these fast, free, ad-supported television, I think because of the advertising, we've said this before, at some point, the advertisers are gonna say, um, actually, we really need to know who's watching this stuff. And by the way, we don't want you to tell us, Mr. Fox, <laughs> right. guarding the hen house. We will have our it. own third party people do it. Um, Nielsen, where are you? Uh, yeah. So I think that's what's going to wind up happening. Once advertising gets involved, then those numbers will start to come out. There are a lot of other things in this deal. For example, comedy variety writers were left in the dark in streaming, but now they are part of the minimum basic agreement. So if you wrote for a comedy variety show on HBO Max, and you weren't getting anything, you weren't part of the minimum basic agreement, now you have that protection. Fast channels, which Sperling just mentioned, just like the DGA, the Writers Guild is now aligned with what they got, and they're going to get minimums and more established stuff for premium content created for fast channels. And we know that fast channels are growing by leaps and bounds, especially as people get sticker shock over all the channels they're being asked to subscribe to. So there's a lot going on in this deal. And I would say Matt Bellamy at Puck News is trying to is willing to give the studio side or giving voice to people. Say, ah, this was, strike was worthless. It was stupid. Um, he has a quote where he says, "There are a ton of very smart people in the talent community who seem to be less enthusiastic about the results of this nearly five month writers' strike." End quote. I would say, well, none of them are writers that you quote. Correct. <laughs> that's well, no, no, one. that's that, and he kind of points that out. And by the way, he's not the only person writing about this. Uh, you know, well, it's yes, all but the, I don't it's, understand it's anyone who's line. not care. I don't understand anyone who's not carrying water for the studios would suddenly be saying people aren't happy about the strike. You have to clarify happy because you're an exhibitor. Happy because you're a, a teamster and you truck driver and you're just pissed you lost a couple months work. Oh, you're a studio and you're sorry about what you gave up uh, because the writers went on strike selfishly for the writers. And they, yes. they felt they weren't able to make a living anymore and they put their careers and their money and their houses on the line and went on strike and they gained a lot. They didn't gain it. They gained everything the DGA gained and in a lot of other new areas where they had no agreements before and they were told not a chance in hell it's going to happen and they made huge gains. I'm not going to pretend I know more about the writers. They sure seem excited about it. Sometimes yeah. you're excited that strike is over. Then you see the details and you go, oh, it's not that good. The writers seem thrilled. The more they learn, the more happy they are. That's certainly how I am for them because I want a fair deal. I want everyone to succeed. But the studio screwed themselves. They could have made this deal six months ago. They better make a deal quickly with the actors. And if I'm an exhibitor, I'd look at this deal and say, you know what? The writers did not ask for anything crazy. And why the hell did you screw up our fall schedule in 2024? Because you wanted to cancel some deals. You wanted to stock some cash so you could get a bigger you know, quarterly payment. You know, This helped you short term maybe, but you're screwing over the business long term. I'd be angry at the studios. They were the ones who refused to come to the table not the writers. 
Well, as Bellany himself pointed out, uh, they should have come to the table months ago. Uh, and I agree with that. I think the reason that these CEOs, by, and by the way, I love the fact that all these guys, you know, each one of these has like a PR team saying, you know, each CEO, it was me that came to the table and brought, brought everybody. But the reality is that the AMPTP has a leader whose job it is to negotiate all this stuff, but it's really her job to say no. Like, you know, people come and ask her for stuff and it's her job no, to go, no, 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 no. Her job but, is to do what they tell her to do. Right. Um, well, not, that she, not that she's an automaton. She is, she doesn't get to act independently. She has to do what she's given uh, orders, marching orders to do. She has talent and creativity and can negotiate within those parameters. But if they're not willing to negotiate, she can't start to negotiate. So she's doing exactly what they told her to do. It's not her, it's them. Well, at some point uh, in August, uh, they went back to the writers and Carol Lombardini said, no, don't go back to the writers. Don't go back to the writers." And I think when they started, to, when she started telling them, no, they were like, oh, wait, this isn't now. Wait, we're going to have to get involved. And I think that's true. You had to get involved. So what? Well, they get did, involved. but she, it's not her fault. They're in charge, not her. You cannot blame the, she's not a lackey. She's an executive no, in board making she, a lot of money, yeah. but she's doing what they tell her to do. If at one week or one minute, she's giving an argument about what strategy to use, it's only to do their game plan. So it's on well, them, not her. And we already, we already she's talked not about the problem. The they are the problem. And we already talked about the fact that they, she may have been getting conflicting opinions from two different camps so not conflicting right. they were all fighting about what they wanted exactly right. so her i'm not trying to exculpate her uh, i wouldn't want to be on their team but yeah they're they're arguing about what to do so how can she negotiate well when they won't even let her get to the table and give her a clear march order on what they agree on they don't agree on it. so again it's their fault not hers they're confused they're fighting with each other they're telling her don't go sit down if they wanted to sit down they could have sat down months ago she wasn't saying no i won't sit down it's on the ceo's and and on the people in the head of the studios and the streamers, period. Um, the one thing I, I will say is, I, you know, I heard the same thing that Bellany's hearing from, mostly from talent agencies and below the line people who were like, what, all that for $233 million a year? It's like, yeah, you're saying that now, but the reality is this, this is just a stepping stone. Three years from now, they'll negotiate from this starting point. And you know what? If they didn't do it now and they needed to do it in 2020, by the way, this should have been hashed out in 2020 and they didn't and things got worse. That's why it took five months. And no, it took five months because of the studios. Well, the studios, yeah, that's true. Uh, and, and I think what you're happening seeing is that uh, they're trying to, they, you know, they want to win the PR war after the game is over. And that was one funny in the puck uh, column about all the different studios and how they're trying to spin their involvement and how important each executive was. Well, I really did this. I really did that. That was amusing. Uh, but the fact is what they're trying to do is divide and conquer the writers from the actors, from the teamsters, from the below the line people. It's not working. The writers were not, the writers were not, there was a lot of unity, not just among the writers, but among all the below the line people. There was a lot of unity from the teamsters from the truckers, from the actors, everybody's in this together. They realize they're not asking for some insane craziness. They just want to be able to make a living. And the studio execs are making a gazillion dollars, you know, obscene amounts of money and telling writers and everybody else, oh, you're unrealistic. You can't really expect that because they did a stupid game plan with how they went into streaming. That's on them. You know, these people yeah. are creating valuable content and the writers and the actors and the teamsters and the below the line and the agents should be united in trying to snap some sense into the studios. Well, and speaking of writers, some of these writers deals, you remember they were all suspended 
they weren't extended. Now they're not being extended. So now that like it's over and they have to come back, all of a sudden there are, uh, you, you know, the studios are keeping the ones they want and not keeping the ones they don't want, which we all knew was going to happen. But this isn't because of the strike. This is because they had way too much television, peak TV. Even TV critics are right. weeping over all the television that they can't watch and apologizing. You know something's gone madly out of control. You can't have 500 different, 600 different original Drama, sitcoms, variety shows, and it's too much stuff. And people can't subscribe to 50 different platforms, so there's going to be fallout. But that's, again, because of the stupid mistakes made by the studios when they suddenly said, oh, my God, we need to compete with Netflix. <laughs> right. Well, and I agree. I think all the people who are saying, you see, this deal is going to cause all of the streamers and the studios to make less content now. They're going to make less, fewer shows, to which I would say, they were going to do that anyway, and here's why. They were spending $10 billion a year and only earning, and they were spending that to make movies and television shows and only earning $5 billion a year. So at some point, they were going to start making fewer television shows and movies for their streaming services. That was going to happen anyway. Yep. So, um, you know, the strike is dead, thank God, but the actor strike goes on. They are meeting today. This is Monday, October 2nd. They're starting to meet today. Hopefully, um, the actors have a lot of hard asks. And the writers were told, you're not going to get what you want. And the actors are being told, you can't get what you want. There's no way. Well, you're going to pay a high price, but hopefully it's important long-term and you can make it done and everybody else will hopefully stand beside them as strongly as they can legally. Well, you mentioned that uh, the strike was dead. I think the actors would say it's not dead. But David McCullum, he is definitely dead. And he is the man <laughs> from UNCLE. He died at the age of 90. That's right. If you're of a certain age, actor David McCollum was the sexy and cool Russian spy Ilya Kurikin in the offbeat TV series The Man from Uncle. That was during your youth. And then you got older and he popped back into your life uh, just when you started watching shows like NCIS. He was played the pathologist Ducky for the last 20 years of his life. In between, he had some cool roles like in the film The Great Escape and he played Judas in the film The Greatest Story Ever Told. On TV, he co-starred with Joanna Lumley in the very odd ghost story of a series called Sapphire and Steel and the excellent Prisoner of War series Colditz. Toss in an excellent adaptation of the Robert Louis Stevenson novel Kidnapped and lots of voice work. You've got a pretty cool career. By the way, The Man from Uncle is a very strange series. It was really serious and you had a Russian spy as for, sort of the co-positive lead during the Cold War. So that was totally bizarre. But then the show got really broad and goofy. Then it got serious again. It's a really schizophrenic series. So you've got, you can't trust any one episode to give you a sense of the show at its best. And by the way, it's not on streaming for rental or purchase on a platform, at least digitally. You can't get The Man from Uncle. You can't get Colditz. You can't get the film Billy Budd that he was in. Of course, you can see The Great Escape and The Greatest Story Ever Told. Sapphire and Steel is on Fubo. And it and Colditz are, of course, on YouTube, posted by somebody. So, you know, you can usually see them even illegally. But there's a lot of stuff, like The Man from Uncle. You can't stream it. You can't rent it or purchase it right now. That's a pretty big series. And when you think about all the shows that are missing and all the stuff that you used to be able to rent from Netflix, get a DVD or a Blu-ray, uh, those days are over. Well, they're also over for Michael Gambon, unfortunately. He passed away at the age of 82. 
The Great Gambon. I mean, that's a nickname that is apt. And when you get nicknamed The Great Gambon by Ralph Richardson, by the way, and it sticks, you know, that's like, that's a hell of a thing. Like Alec Guinness as Obi-Wan Kenobi in Star Wars, Michael Gambon is now known by almost everyone as Professor Dumbledore in the Harry Potter movies. He took over in the third film after actor Richard Harris died. But his career is filled with triumphs in theater, film, TV. I've seen him on stage. He's just... Such an amazing actor, really just one of the greats. He was one of the original members of the Royal National Theater when Laurence Olivier was launching it. Uh, he was like hired to be a spearman. Yeah, we need some big guys to be like a spear carrier. That was literally his first job. And he got endless awards, though never an Oscar. The TV show, The Singing Detective, The Singing Detective is a landmark UK miniseries from Dennis Potter, one of the greats of all time. He also played Magritte in a series. The film, The Cook, The Thief, His Wife and Her Lover by Peter Greenaway, an important indie film. It helped make him and co-star Helen Mirren international stars. He was in Michael Mann's best film, The Insider. He was in Robert Altman's late career triumph, Gosford Park. He narrated the two Paddington movies, which, as our in-house film critic will tell you, Paddington 2, the best film of all time. And when this is bizarre, when George Lazenby left James Bond, Gambon was asked to audition. That blows my mind. Uh, but, you know, when he was 24, he wrote to the Dublin theater and made up an entire resume and said, I'm just passing through. I'd love to act at your little theater. And they took him on. But he was in Skylight by David Hare, Betrayal by Harold Pinter, a big success in Alan Ackborn's The Norman Conquest, a very funny string of plays. Tons of Shakespeare, Macbeth, Falstaff. And uh, his big hit was uh, The Life of Galileo with Brecht. Uh, it was, he turned, it was the first play by Brecht to become a popular hit. And on first night, when he came off the stage, his fellow actors were leaning out and applauding him from their dressing rooms, which is like a rare, rare honor that almost never happens. That tells you how highly regarded he was. He had to stop acting on the stage like a decade ago. When I heard that, my heart broke because I saw him right at the end in a tiny theater in New York City doing something with, I think, Eileen Atkins. And the conceit was that it was a radio play, or maybe it had been, but they were basically sitting there with their script because he couldn't do it without. So it was a, a marvelous, marvelous career. What a great actor, and uh, what a shame to see him go. Well, you know, uh, I think that uh, these days it would be very hard for you to make up a resume and then go, hey, I did all this stuff, because now they've told me to Google that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, what? This guy sounds great. Wait yeah. a second. <laughs> Wait a second. We can't find him anywhere. Who is this Gambon guy? But you no, know, I, I interviewed him twice, uh, once for The Insider and once for Gosford Park. Oh, I never spoke to him. Good for you. Yeah. Uh, very nice guy, at least yes. back in those days. Charming um, raconteur, I imagine. Yes, kind of like we're, we're, we're raconteurs, right? I mean, we, we yeah, raconteur oh, during this particular... Um, absolutely. Rock on, baby. Yeah, well, uh, yes, because we're younger than Bruce Springsteen. That's why we can do that. <laughs> um, in any case, you can subscribe to our show in iTunes, Google Podcasts, Microsoft Marketplace, Spotify, anywhere they give podcasts away for free. Any place you get your podcasts, usually you can find us in any one of those places. And we love it when you rate and re review the show in those podcast aggregators. It helps us out when you do. Links to all of the stories we've discussed on today's episode, as well as those ways to subscribe to us and ways to contact us. In fact, you can write to us, dirt at showbizsandbox.com. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. 
or you can call us 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. Or you can follow us on Twitter at Showbiz Sandbox is our handle. Or you can like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash Showbiz Sandbox is where you can find our page to like. All of this information, though, is on our website, showbizsandbox.com. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of each show is by the popular indie rock group, MGMT. That's uh, the band. Do they have a new album? I don't think they have a new album. They do. They have, they've been teasing music. I, for, I forgot. I, I thought I put a note down in there. That's right. I forgot to mention that. MGMT has just teased that they're about to come out with some new music. And as Good. soon as we have more info, we'll let you know. Well, in any case, in the meantime, you can go to whoismgmt.com to learn more about them. And by the way, Michael Giltz uh, has a, a new website, and every week it's something new and exciting. What is it this week, Michael? This week it's bigmanonmulberrystreet.com. That is a Billy Joel song. And a reference to moonlighting there's a big episode of moonlighting built around that song a big musical number uh they did all sorts of things on that show black and white uh noir uh, shakespeare uh they in one episode they built big musical numbers around some songs including big man on mulberry street by billy joel from his new album at the time and big man on mulberry street.com is available billy so get to work there but in the meantime, why not head on over to michaelgiltz.com where all of Michael's coverage of the entertainment industry is aggregated. Some of my work can be found on celluloidjunkie.com. Until next week, play nice. Uh-huh.